Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Tech Talks. You're chopping it up with Chuck here, and we are very excited to be speaking with Roger Obando today. And we are going to talk about, um, well, we're going to talk about uh, him. We're going to talk about his, uh, his background. And most importantly, we're going to talk about his new book, The Highest Common Denominator. How you doing, Roger? Great, Chuck. So excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. We were uh, uh, we were really we were really jazzed to be able to talk to you because you have such a uh, well, you've got a you've got a heck of a background, you know, in the industry and uh, and kind of a tech related background. And us being, you know, cannabis and tech today, um, we were really excited to get to talk to you. Can you uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about your uh, your background? Of course. Actually, I was thinking about this before uh, jumping on here with you. I, I think it's. Uh, really uh, appropriate that uh, it is a cannabis and tech podcast because of my background. So I um, have a computer science degree, got that uh, way back in 2000. So I'm a dinosaur compared to most of the guys doing tech these days. But uh, so yeah, I've been doing tech stuff ever since. I mean, I came up in the days of large consulting. I did a lot of that for many years, had my own uh, consulting firm in New York and Los Angeles for many years worked with a lot of big name firms, everyone from JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank to uh, most studios in Los Angeles and a bunch of automotive companies like Nissan and Honda. And then one day I just decided that services were the devil and I no longer wanted to be in the service industry. I think is a lot of technologists kind of come to realize as well. And I decided to jump into technology uh, startups and actually owning a product. I had a couple of swings and misses before I finally found Baker, but in 2014, uh, myself and my co-founders, uh, Joel Milton and David Champion, saw an opportunity to create a company to address a specific issue in the industry. And you know that issue, and I'm sure you guys remember this, uh, back in 2014, I was on the East Coast and we were seeing all, these, all this media coverage about these huge lines of people waiting outside of dispensaries. And, you know, we looked at that and then living in a city where we were so used to Grubhub, this is before Postmates, but like Grubhub, things like that. We said, hey, we can solve that problem. What if we build an online reservation system for the cannabis industry and and start selling this to dispensaries? You know, fast forward four years later, we had grown Baker into one of the largest CRMs uh, in cannabis, actually the largest CRM in cannabis. We had acquired approximately 35% of the legal market share. So one out of three legal cannabis stores was using our systems. And uh, at the end of 2018, we entered into a four-way merger deal that valued our company at over $100 million, went public and exited. So, you know, that's uh, the, the, the long and short of it for, for my 20-year career. Just like you drew it up, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Just like I planned. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, you know, the world of, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, it's, it's, it's painted as so, you know, this is the Instagram days and it's painted as so glorious and, you know, everything like that. But, um, you mentioned, you know, some swing and some misses and, and stuff like that. That really is, uh, uh, the entrepreneur's domain, if you will, you know, just, um, you know, being able to adjust and be resilient and, you know, take your, take your, uh, um, you know, take, take a licking every once in a while, but keep on moving. And, um, that really shows a lot of, uh, resiliency to, uh, you know, to stick with it and, and have that successful exit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I spend a lot of time talking to young entrepreneurs and 
I think a lot of them have a misconception. Uh, no, to be fair, a lot of young entrepreneurs now have come up in the era of the Mark Zuckerbergs and uh-huh. Evan Spiegels, and they've seen that these guys are doing the old drop out of college, knock it out of the park on the first try. You know, but for every Zuckerberg, there's a thousand guys who, you know, swing and miss every time and never make yeah. it, right? Um, and I think most entrepreneurs fall somewhere in between those two, those two ends of the spectrum. And, you know, honestly, I, I feel like having some failure in your background is, is really beneficial. I think you can't really appreciate success without failure. And you learn so much more from the failures than you ever do from success. Yeah, that's that's what they say. You you don't learn a whole lot when you uh, when you're successful. But um, it's like in the book, The Talent Code. You know, you almost have to fail in order to to ever approach any kind of level of mastery. It's it's like impossible to do it without it, unless you're you know like an alien or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I feel like you know, and the media doesn't do do us any favors, right? Uh, you know, I I understand I'm talking to a media outlet right now, but. Um, so much of the media just wants to cover, you know, the home runs. Yeah. They don't really get into the, you know, the past. You know, I, I speak to a lot of groups nowadays and they want to hear all about Baker. They don't want to be hear about Camino. They don't want to hear about Hitch Radio. You know, those things that never really happened, right? Like no one really knows about them because they never took off. But those, a lot of, you know, the, the experience that I had with those companies is what contributed to the success of what Baker became. So did you have a, like an aha moment? You know, like uh, where you where you had the idea for this, uh, you know, the software, the CRM to where people could, uh, um, you know, not have to wait in line. Was there can you remember when you like had that moment where you were just like, you know, I think we've got something here. Yeah. You know, there's actually probably two moments in particular that I think about uh, as aha moments. And the first was, you know, when we first decided to start the company. I'll, I'll, I'll recount that story real quick, just because I think it, it really shows how important serendipity is um, in, in the path to success. I was working out of a co-working space in New York City, and uh, the space was called Fueled. And I had a desk next to a, you know, it's, we've all been to these spaces at this point. You know, you yeah. have a bunch of people just kind of milling around. And I had a desk that I was only borrowing from a friend because I couldn't afford to have a real desk. I only had like a community membership where I could sit at one of the big tables. But fortunately, a friend of mine lent me their desk. And while I was sitting at that desk, I overheard the conversation that my now co-founders were having over the depart- the you know divider between us. And they were talking about a cannabis event that was going to be happening the next day. I just so happened to have been researching that event the night before myself. And again, as a starving entrepreneur, I knew that tickets were 400 bucks. And I was trying to figure out a way to get in without having to fork over the 400 bucks. And so, you know, without even thinking twice about it, I popped my head up over the divider and I said, aren't tickets to that like $400? And they looked at me like I had two heads. Like, why would this guy, you know, sitting in the room next to us or the, the little cube next to us even know anything about this event? So, you know, before long, we started talking about it. We found out that I was thinking about the industry. They were thinking about the industry. Both of our companies were kind of in zombie startup mode where you know where you got a little bit of traction and you got some people who kind of want to give you money but they want to see a little more traction you still have a little money in the bank but it's not enough to keep you going long term and so we were kind of trying to figure out what the next step was you know just like that we started the company the next day we started working on this product and so that was the first kind of like oh my god um this works out so well especially because of the composition of the team uh, yeah, I'm a tech, you know I'm a technologist, right? So I've been doing tech for 20 years. Uh, David Champion, my co-founder, was a reformed architect. 
So he had a lot of UX and UI skills that he was putting to use and, and doing online experience work. And Joel, Joel Milton, who ended up being the CEO, um, you know, he's straight up business guy. That's money, networking, access, uh, all that sort of stuff. So between the three of us, we didn't really need a whole lot more um, to get the thing going off the ground. We started going. So that was the first moment where it was like, that was way too easy, right? From one day to the next, we just got this thing going. And then the second moment kind of came when um, down the line, we had built our online reservation system that was working well. We parlayed that into a digital loyalty system when we came to realize that uh, customer retention was going to be much more important than customer acquisition in this space. But the last thing that we realized was that we had been gathering all this information about consumers. We have been gathering information about their purchase habits, their product preferences, their average spend, their average visit frequency, all this sort of stuff. And kind of the light bulb went off and said, wow, we, without even realizing it, we built a CRM for our customers. <laughs> And we feverishly set off to build a targeted marketing platform leveraging SMS. Um, because a lot, of, as a lot of people know in this space, there's very limited uh, avenues for people to use for advertising and publicity. You can't use Google, you can't use uh, Facebook, you can't use Instagram. And so we've built a direct marketing tool set that allowed them to text their consumers with uh, texts that were based on their uh, data so that they would have very high levels of engagement with the consumers. And that was kind of, for me, the big aha moment and what got us to that market share number. Yeah, you pretty much, you checked all the boxes. Uh, you, had a, you had a smart team. Uh, you, you, you're in the cannabis industry, so you're you know already kind of pointed in the right direction. You're focusing on data uh, and then you know marketing built in there. You pretty much, uh, you, you covered all the bases. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's all due to really listening to the audience. I think so many founders um, fall in love with their ideas and yeah. think that what we want to do, like, no, they don't understand, right? Everyone, everyone always loves to quote Henry Ford and this quote about how, if I would have given the people what they wanted, I would have built a faster horse. And I think there's something to be said about that for sure. But in an industry like this, where there's people who've been around the industry for far longer than we've even been alive, it made a lot of sense to listen to them. And to say, hey, there's going to be pain points. And I know that this crowd is not terribly technical. Guess what? We are. Tell us <laughs> what your problems are. And we'll start addressing those problems. And that's how we got to where we ended up. So the uh, um, and, and, and cannabis industry, were you a you know, cannabis consumer before? Were you someone that always had, you know, kind of an interest in the industry? Or how, how did that uh, how did that kind of uh, angle start? Sure. Um, you know, I've been someone, I've been an advocate for cannabis legalization since I was about 18 years old. Um, you know, in my book, I recount the first experience of, of consuming. And, you know, I grew up in the Nancy Reagan, just say no era. You know, I had the dare program in school. Yeah. Uh, I'm, the, yeah I'm the son of immigrants. So, you know, it was even that much more pressure from them being like, don't mess up. You know, they, you yeah. already have a target on your back. Uh, you better be the best kid in school, Do work as hard as you can. And I'll always thank them for instilling that work ethic in me. But, you know, I, I was never one to be a, a strong risk taker uh, as far as as far as experimenting with drugs and alcohol came. But when I was 18, I had a group of friends who finally convinced me to, you know, take a couple of hits off a joint. And I'll never forget the feeling I had when I when I first smoked it, because it was so you know, it was so nothing compared to what I thought it would be. 
right? And a lot of people think that when I say that, I'm going to talk about how I got high or whatever, but that's not the case. The, the thought I had immediately was, I've been lied to. Like, I've been lied to my entire <laughs> life about how bad of a thing this is. And because of that, I immediately turned into an advocate for, you know, I think for me, most importantly, truth. Yeah. But also, you know, as, as a way, you know, as a way of communicating that was for, for the legalization or decriminalization of cannabis, because at the end of the day, especially as I got older and I realized how damaging alcohol can be, you know, at the end of the day, like, how is it that this is a schedule one drug? Yeah. Isn't it strange to think about how for so long this was, you know, public enemy number one and the disinformation that was out there and everything like that, it kind of turns out it was all BS. Absolutely. It was a made up thing. It was a nothing burger. You know, it was like just a big nothing burger. A lot of people went to jail. A lot of, you know, uh, uh, cost people a lot of money and, you know, things like that. And when, like you said, when you look at it now in retrospect, um, they could have been doing a lot of research. There could have been, you know, just a lot. It was almost like the dark ages uh, of cannabis, you know? Absolutely. And, and as a person of color, you know, I'm of Costa Rican descent. Uh, I, later on, when I really started to dig Vida. on the, you know, there you go. Pura Vida. <laughs> Absolutely. When I really started to dig on the roots of, of what, why prohibition existed in the first place. And I came across folks like, you know, uh, Harry Anslinger and William Randall Hearst and their role in really demonizing the plant its xenophobic roots um, and how it's been, you know, wielded by everyone from Anslinger to Nixon uh, to justify the incarceration of people of color. You know, that just made me double down on my advocacy and, and, and you know, hopefully the, the education of people. I know the minute you can tell people, you can tell people all day long that cannabis isn't, you know, isn't that bad. It's not what you've been told. And they'll kind of, you know, they'll nod their heads and agree with you. But the minute you educate them on the roots of, of prohibitionism, a prohibition rather, um, that's when they really start to listen. And, you know, especially in this day and age with all, you know, the topics of uh, systemic racism that we're seeing in our communities, they'll really perk up and listen at that point. And, you know, I'm really happy that, that we're at a point in our history where that is the case. Yeah. Yeah. Even you think about it throughout history too, some people like, you know, Nixon or whatever, maybe, maybe a little weed would have been good for him. You know, maybe, yeah. if he, maybe if he would have smoked a J get to calm down a little bit, you know, and uh, maybe history yeah. would have been different. <laughs> Absolutely. There's actually, I don't know if you've heard of this other, uh, podcast, called Great Moments in Weed History. It's uh, Abdullah Saeed. Uh, he's, got a, he's had a show on Vice. He was on Bong Appetit for a long time. And those guys, they talk about all these moments in history. And uh, it's a really funny show. You should definitely check it out. Dude, I, I love it already. Okay, yeah. listen, we're going we're gonna to take a quick break right now. And uh, I'm really excited when we come back, we are going to chat about the highest common denominator um, your book. And I'm, and I'm excited to let the audience know a little bit more about that and dive into some more topics here uh, with Roger Obando. And we will be right back. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a quick break here, but we just wanted to remind you that this episode of Cannabis and Tech Talks is brought to you by STM Canna, your source for some of the best tech in the cannabis industry, including the Rocket Box and the new grinder, The Revolution. And we're back right now. You're chopping it up with Chuck here on Cannabis and Tech Talks. And we are with Roger Obando. And we are very excited um, to talk a little bit about 
your book. Can you tell us about uh, what was the inspiration for it? Is it really all it's cracked up to be to, uh, to write a book? And uh, just give us a little bit of a uh, behind the scenes there. Sure. Happy to do it. Um, I'll answer the, is it all it's cracked up to be first? Writing a book, if you're not an author, is a daunting task. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. You know, I am so used to this, you know, tech startup mentality of get something out there and iterate on it. And turns out you can't do that with the book. Turns out once you get a book out there, it's pretty much set in stone until you're ready to release a second, you know, a second version of it. So, you know, working on something for over a year behind the scenes before I was able to release it was um, anxiety inducing, to say the least, but very happy I did it. Um, you know, the, the main driver for me to do the book was, um, you know, I mentioned briefly earlier uh, about building my company and, and going public and having an exit. Uh, I remember actually the moment when I decided to write the book. It, it was, in, uh, was in Los Angeles. I was on stage at the Staples Center at the California Cannabis Awards, and I was receiving, along with my California market manager, uh, a fellow by the name of Rico Tarber, I was receiving an award for most innovative technology of the year for Baker Technologies, which, you know, in and of itself was a huge honor. And I was very thankful to be there. And I was really kind of, you know, basking in the glow of the whole moment. But the minute I got off stage, you know, there was a lot of congratulations coming our way. But what I didn't expect was that everyone kept harping on the same point. They said, it's so great to see a brown man and a black man receiving an award for technology in the cannabis space. And it was just kind of a, a common theme that kept coming up. And I, I kind of looked around and I did a quick inventory of my peers in the space. You know, people would come up along with me who had exits and I didn't see any other brown and black men or women in the space. And it really made me understand how much need there was for diversity in this industry, especially in these early days. Uh, you know, I think the message I've been telling people lately, especially young entrepreneurs, is that the time to get in, especially at the senior level of the cannabis industry is now, because we're seeing so much conglomeration happen. And when the big dollars start coming in, you end up with kind of more traditional business people. And, you know, for the most part, those traditional business people don't look like us. So now is the time to get in and really assert yourself and, and put yourself in a position where you can be in leadership because diversity creates more diversity. So if we have diverse leadership, we're going to create a more diverse team. I, um, you know, I was looking at that and, and that was something that was very important to me, you know, and, and by, by diversity, I don't just mean cultural diversity. I also mean gender diversity. Sure. I also mean LG, LGBTQ communities. I mean, everything. I was always a big champion of diversity at Baker. And, and I think it's something that really needs to be spoken of. But also with that same privilege of being the position that I'm in, the platform that I've been granted for that, I also understand that there's a responsibility that I have to speak to my own community. Um, and for me, you know, that is a community of, of Latin Americans. I grew up in the East Coast amongst Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and Ecuadorians. Um, and, and I know that while the, the message that most people end up hearing is that the man is trying to hold uh, us down, I also, having come through it, understand that there's a lot of issues within our own communities that need to be addressed. Issues of nationalism, issues of tribalism, um, you know, issues of not being able to stray too far from the company line as far as culture is concerned. 
And, you know, it's, I'm in a unique position as one of those people to speak very frankly to them and say, Hey, there's opportunity to be had. Yes. There's systemic issues, but also let's talk about the things that are messed up within our own communities. And let's talk about what you have to do. And the book turned into me telling my story and, and mostly focusing on a lot of decisions that I think people within my own community probably wouldn't have made the same decisions. So going, walking through why I made those decisions, why I did the things I did in order to, you know, kind of hold the book up as a mirror to people yeah. so they can look at their own decisions and say, well, what would I have done in that situation? Uh, and I hope that that is going to create some inspiration, especially amongst young entrepreneurs to come in and say, okay, here's my chance. Maybe I need to think about this a little differently and create some opportunity for myself. So do you think, do you think that, you know, the lack of, um, um, you know, people of color in tech and in cannabis in particular, do you think that that comes from access or do you think it's kind of a, you know, like you were saying earlier, it's a, it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that, but it, it definitely is evident in the world of tech. Um, and then that's just translated over into cannabis that, you know, basically, Hey, we need more diversity. Um, is it, what, where, where do you think that that, that stems from? You know, actually, I think you, you hit it right on the head. The term access is something that I've been using quite a bit to describe the core of the problem. Um, I get a lot of young uh, people of color, young entrepreneurs, women who are very frustrated and they, and they come to me and they say, you know, I've been going to venture capitalist firms and at the end of the day, I just think they're racist. They don't want to invest in people of color. I don't, they don't think they want to invest in me. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I will be the first one to say, I think you're wrong. I know a lot of VCs and every VC I know sees only one color and that color is green. As long as you come to them and they can see, like you can show them how investing in you is going to make them money. They don't care if you're purple and you come from Venus, you know, they are, they really do not. I think the issue is an issue of access. Mm-hmm. While a lot of early stage startups, and I've gone through this several times, a lot of early stage startups, the first thing you do is generally speaking, you raise a friends and family around, right? Which means you're reaching out to your network of family members, of their friends who saw you grow up. And, you know, these are people who potentially, and I've been through this several times, including with Baker, friends of family who can write fifty and $100,000 checks. Yeah. Right. And then you end up with a little bit of a nest egg there that you leverage to get through the first 12 to 18 months to build a prototype, to mm. show some traction, right? And then you take that traction to the, the venture community or to the investor community at large, and they have something to base their decision off of, right? I think a lot of people in uh, underprivileged communities don't have access to that network. They yeah. also don't have access to the knowledge that that's what it takes to get investment. I think they hear, again, the media covering yeah. from a very high level, this new, st- this new company got funding, blah, blah, blah. And they're not privy to the fact that they've been around for 18, 24 months already, most likely. And they've been building stuff and they've been showing traction. So, you know, I think it's a lack of access to this information, the lack of access to the resources, um, and it's a lack of access to the network, honestly, that, you know, you end up having once you get over that hump. Uh, and that's something that I try to really tell people and and especially uh, in these underprivileged communities to say, you really need to go outside of your own community and you need to build the biggest and most diverse network you can, because that is only going to serve you in the future. 
but you're going to be able to weaponize that network and leverage everyone within that network to make this happen. Because if you only depend on people within your own community, you're really, you know, you're, you're setting yourself up at a disadvantage. Yeah. And I also believe that I, I think, I think all of that makes, makes so much sense, you know, from a, from a logistical standpoint and a practical standpoint and an access um, you know, area. But I think the other thing too, is that we, as a culture, you know, you get what you celebrate. So, um, you know, uh, we've, we've got several tech magazines that we do over here. Our background is in, um, a publication called innovation and tech today. And we really focus on STEM and, uh, you know, uh, getting, getting kids excited about STEM and STEM jobs. Cause we think that, um, you know, if they're inspired, um, to do stuff in STEM and it's cool and it's something that they see as a viable path, we'll have a lot more, um, you know, people of color and, you know, women in the tech space. And so I think it's important that the media celebrates, uh, STEM and, you know, that it's okay to, uh, you know, to, to be an engineer or to invent something or to solve a problem. And I think that there's an important role that the media has to play too, in order to make it so that, um, this is something that kids are saying, yeah, this is what I want to do. Young, you know, young adults are saying, Hey, I can do this. I can go into that. And so I think it's important also that, um, that we're celebrating these entrepreneurs and we're celebrating, um, people that are solving problems because I think then that manifests itself further and we're going to get more people jumping in and that, and that's what we need. You know, I completely agree. And if I compare my, I graduating class uh, at Duke in 2000, the computer science class at that point, I think my major was 30 people. I went back to speak with the head of the department last year while I was writing this book. And he said that, you know, the class this year is going to be about 380 people graduating and that it's almost a 50, 50 split male, female. So, you know, that makes me really happy to see that all the work that the, you know, you guys in media have been doing is working. People understand that there's so much opportunity here and they're getting their education and they're ready to hit the workforce. So I'm really excited about what the next few years hold for, for us in the industry and the cannabis industry in particular, because, you know, very smart people who up up until now haven't been willing to join the industry because, you know, the risk profile was a little higher than they would like. Uh I think they finally realized the sky's not falling on us. And there's yeah. still opportunity here and they're going to start jumping in with both feet. Uh, and just out of curiosity, your book is how, how long is your book? Uh, I believe it's about 290 pages long. So people are going to get their money's worth. There's a lot of stuff here. 290, 90 plus pages. Did you, did you, I was just curious, did you type it all out or do you like, do you, when you get flowing, do you ever like, have you ever, you know, like done the, the speak to, to type or, or did you sit down and just kind of like, just hammer it all out typing? Well, it was a lot of conversations that were okay. recorded and then coming back in little drips and drabs and, and incorporating that sort of stuff. So it wasn't just one long hammering it out sort of session, even though at this point, you know, after 20 years in tech, I type way faster than I speak. Um, <laughs> so that probably would have been a better way to go about it. But, uh, you know, over the course of a year, you're doing chapters at a time. And I'd be lying if I said I did this by myself. I have a creative partner who helped me on it. And, you know, she has done books in the past. So she was able to say, okay, well, let's take this part of your story and let's see where it slots in. You know, is this a chapter three thing? Is this a chapter five thing? And you end up jumping around quite a bit and it becomes basically a jigsaw puzzle that you piece back together into the best possible narrative. Um, you know, as I said earlier, doing the book is, is a monumental task. And if I had tried to do it on my own, I think it would have probably taken me 10 years. 
Yeah. It just seems like a lot of work and you were, you were still working while you were doing it. Right. I mean, you didn't just like, like, like a, a professional writer, like, Hey, don't bug me for the next year. I'm going to be up here typing on my typewriter. You were, you were still doing stuff, right? No, absolutely. I mean, I was at Baker until the end of January of last year. I was already well into the book project. I currently advise four different companies and I consult with two others. Yeah. So I've got a lot of stuff on my plate right now. And it, it was a matter of, you know, fitting it in where you can. But I guess, you know, being an entrepreneur, that that is good training for that. Because I think most of your life really is fitting things in wherever you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So what are you, what are you excited about now? Um, you know, in the cannabis industry right now, anything that you, you're really kind of excited related to, uh, uh, to tech or innovations or anything? Well, you know, I think I touched on, on something a second ago that's got me pretty excited. And that is, you know, for those of us who have been around tech for so long, you end up with this network of really talented individuals that you started, you know, on the ground with. And you see them going through the different levels and layers of the industry, going from a dev to a senior dev to maybe architect or DBA, or some go the management route. And a lot of them end up at either chief product or chief technology officer. And, you know, my network of people is chock full of those individuals. And as I mentioned earlier, they've been kind of hesitant to, to enter the space right now. Most of them can't blame them. They're making good money at big companies. And, you know, there was no need for them to take the big risk. And also, I've just always been one of those people who, you know, the way I explain it to a good buddy of mine who works for Amazon uh, is that he's been hitting singles and doubles his whole career. I've been swinging for the fences the entire time. And we are, you know, comparably successful, depending on who you're talking to. We just did it in very different ways. And so what I'm seeing is a lot of those guys who've been hitting singles and doubles are looking at this industry and finally realizing, hey, there's still a lot of opportunity in this space. That coupled with the fact that we're going through this big shakeout right now, where a lot of companies are downsizing, a lot of companies are falling apart. Um, you know, I saw this happen during the dot-com bubble in 2000, where those people who never really should have been in the industry in the first place, the ones who really aren't advocates and were just in it to make a buck, they go off and do whatever they should have done in the first place, you know, real estate or whatever. Um, and those of us who are still you know, really strong advocates for this industry. We're not going anywhere. We're staying in the space. So you end up with this realignment of good talent and this introduction and injection of fresh talent. So what I think is going to happen is, is a long awaited um, explosion of innovation in the tech side of the industry. I think we're going to start seeing exponential growth in the industry. We're, we're going to start seeing really, um, you know, innovative new products come out. There's a strong need for so many things in this industry. Someone has yet to come out with a fantastic ERP that is focused on the cannabis industry. And it's understandable why. I mean, that, that's a big task. That is a monumental task to come Heavy up with ERP system. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, there's going to be a consolidation of point of sales. There's far too many of them out there now. And we're trying to identify who the winners are going to be. I think there's a ton of opportunity for government regulation systems. I think the ones that are out there are, you know, they're, they're doing okay. They're, they're, they're filling in a niche that needs to be done, but, you know, speak to any technologist. And, and I think most of us would say that most of that tech is pretty old and, and needs a refresh. So um, I, I'm excited to see what comes out of this industry, specifically in technology in the next 18 to 24 months. Yeah, tech is tech is just it's zooming along so fast and everything that we've got from AI to, you know, IOT to I mean, just everything that's happening. Um, it's all happening in the cannabis industry, too, which is moving, 
you know, super fast by itself as well. So it really is an exciting time. And, uh, um, we're probably going to see a lot of really cool stuff on the, in the near future, you know, helping the industry forward and, and helping the businesses in there. And I think, uh, it's pretty safe to say tech's going to play a big part of that. You know, absolutely. And, you know, so many companies are out there in stealth that a lot of people don't know about that are taking advantage of, you know, IOT and machine learning and AI to, you know, reinvent this industry because, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I like to talk to people about is this opportunity for technology leapfrogging, right? The, a perfect example of this is is Africa, right? Africa never really got a well-established uh, landline system for phones in place. So yeah. when the cell phone was introduced, all of a sudden just it exploded. Everyone had a cell phone. Yeah. And there's no legacy systems that you have to displace in order to get that market share. So I think that's a really good you know, metaphor for what's happening now in the cannabis industry. There's no traditional cannabis tech. So it's all blank slate. And that for me is incredibly exciting. Yeah, I think I've heard that more people on earth have smartphones than have access to clean water. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt that. Yeah, it's just so it's so uh, necessary, you know, as a part of life. And uh, it's happened so quickly there. So uh, listen, where can people get a copy of the highest common denominator? What's uh, where, where can people get a copy of the book or uh, uh, where can they find you? Absolutely. So the book just came out last week. I'm really excited. It's uh, interesting. Again, now I've moved on from author to self promoter. Yeah, you've got um, some you got some good ratings on Amazon, too. Yeah, I'm looking to get more of those. So you can find the book on Amazon.com. There's a Kindle version and a paperback version uh, will soon be available on Barnes and Noble. But as of right now, I'm driving everyone to Amazon and begging and pleading people to leave me reviews. Um, I really want to hear what the community has to say about the book. Well, I tell you what, Roger, would, uh, uh, here's what we'll do. We will give away a copy of your book, and uh, I bet we could probably get it signed by you. And we will give away a copy of your book to one of our listeners uh, to this who share the podcast out or subscribe. So we'll, we'll keep track of that. And uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, make sure you hit the like and, uh, and subscribe. And we will give away a copy of this. I can't wait to read it myself. The Highest Common Denominator, Elevating Your Base Self by Roger Obando. Oh, that's a great idea. Thanks so much, Chuck. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's a pleasure. I uh, look forward to catching up with you probably at, uh, at one of these events or something like that. And again, thanks for everything that you've done. We really appreciate your time and uh, um, can't wait to read the book. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Cannabis and Tech Talks. If you like this podcast, make sure that you subscribe and share with your friends. And don't forget to check us out on iTunes, iHeartRadio, iPhones, anything with an I. You can find us there with Cannabis and Tech Talks. And uh, don't forget to follow us on social media so you can stay in the conversation. And visit our website, canatechtoday.com. 